Greetings, you 10-foot gubnets. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. This episode actually marks the fourth birthday of this podcast. We've been doing this podcast for four fucking years. I don't think at the time I thought I'd be doing this podcast for four years. I didn't think that this podcast would become what it has become. I initially started this podcast as a way to promote my book of short stories. It was 2017, late 2017. I'd just written a book of short stories. I'd never written a book of short stories before. And I was like, fuck, how do I go from being the lad in the rubber bandits who was making music to all of a sudden having a book of fiction? How do I do that? Will people purchase it? How do I let them know that the stories in this book are even worth reading? So I said, I'm going to have to do a podcast. And on this podcast, I'm going to read out some stories. And then hopefully some people will hear it. And then they'll say, these stories aren't too bad. I think I might try this book. So I did. I read out a few short stories on the first couple of podcast episodes. I thought maybe I was going to do about four podcast episodes back then. And then the podcast got really popular really quickly. So I said, fuck it. I guess I'm doing a a weekly podcast now. And here we are, four years later. I think we're at almost 35 million listens. We've got listeners all over the fucking world. And there isn't really any signs of uh, of anything slowing down. The podcast continues to grow. It started off as kind of just a thing in Ireland, but now, jeez, I'd say most of my listeners now are outside of Ireland. I don't really have an Irish podcast anymore. I just have a podcast that people listen to all around the gaff. And I have to say, and I genuinely mean this, and thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast, but this podcast has been the highlight of my career it really has been the highlight of my career and what feels so lovely about that is I've been serious about creating art or entertainment or whatever the fuck you want to call it I've been trying to have a serious go at creativity being my career since school since fucking school and that was 20 years ago so I've been professionally creative or at least attempting it For 20 years. And this has been the utter highlight. And what feels so fantastic is. In my 20s. I was part of a musical duo. Called the Rubber Bandits. And. We were semi successful. I suppose it depends on how you define success. I don't know. We managed to take creativity and art. Which would have been something we were doing. Amongst friends. And then turn that into a thing we could do professionally at a. At a high level. At an international level. And it was tremendous crack. But. At the time I started this podcast. Four years ago. I was ready to wind down. I was genuinely like. That was good crack there now. The rubber bandits thing. That's run its course. That's very much something for my 20s. I think now it's time for me to. To join the real world. I went back and I did a master's degree. And I was like. I'm going to try to become a college lecturer maybe. In art. Or I might go back and and, uh, finish my qualification in psychotherapy and become a psychotherapist. And that's what I was going to do with my 30s because I thought I'd gotten lucky. 
I thought I'd gotten lucky. I thought the bandits thing was just, wow, what a, what a wonderful story that I can tell people about my 20s. A bit like that episode of The Simpsons where Bart goes up to the attic and he opens up this box and it turns out that Homer was in this group called the B-Sharps when he was in his 20s and it was popular for a while and then it fizzled out. I thought that was going to be, that was going to be me and I was grand with that. I was totally okay with it. I was so grateful to, grateful to have fucking spent my 20s, like I said, touring and gigging and making music. How much crack was that, especially during a recession? And then life just threw me a beautiful little surprise out of nowhere in the form of my short stories, which I didn't think were going to do well, and this podcast. And life just said, hold on a minute. Your 20s was not the highlight of your creative career. That was actually just a starting point. Now you've got a completely new career, which is much better and more rewarding and wider reaching than the one you had in your 20s. And you can actually earn a living from this one while doing what you love. And that was one of the setbacks as well of my career in my 20s. The nature of what we were doing meant that we were at the mercy of television commissioners and the music industry. So I could spend months writing a treatment and writing a script and coming up with an idea for a TV show or for a documentary. And then I submit it to a commissioner and if one person in the TV station doesn't like it, it just doesn't get made, it's thrown in the bin. But that's still months of work that's unpaid. Or similarly with music, you spend months unpaid producing, recording a track then you pump a load of your own money into making a video and if that doesn't get the views if people don't like it if it doesn't succeed in a mainstream fashion then you're in hot water so unfortunately from a creative point of view what you're forced to do is to compromise and you compromise by trying to make your work a little bit more mainstream and when that happens you're not being authentic to yourself as an artist and then the work isn't enjoyable And I'm so glad that that's no longer a model I operate under because I've got the Patreon. The Patreon means this podcast is listener supported. So I have full creative control, fully independent, and I have the space and time to fail and fuck up. And only through having the time to fail and fail and fail can you create a piece of work that you're truly happy with that people will enjoy. So thank you to all of ye who, not only the patrons of the podcast, but the people who are just sharing it and mentioning people that they like this podcast. We wouldn't be celebrating the fourth birthday if it wasn't for ye. Simple as that. Wouldn't be happening. So thank you for, for believing in me. I'm tremendously gracious. And I remind myself of that every single morning I wake up. So that's what this podcast's fourth birthday means to me. A beautiful, wonderful transformative thing in my life that confirmed to me that don't give up on your fucking dreams you can put them on hold there's no reason to invest everything in your dream you can always have a plan B but never give up on them keep sticking at it keep trying if the thing that you're trying is intrinsic to your sense of self and Being creative, creating art of any description, writing, 
that's intrinsic to my being. And fuck it, who knows, in a year's time, you know, someone could change the algorithm for podcasts or whatever. And I'm back in obscurity. But who gives a fuck? I'll get a different job. But I won't give up on creativity. I'll be in a studio somewhere painting paintings or making songs or writing stories. Even if no one sees or hears or anything, I'll be doing it for the sake of it. For the sheer love of making art. So there you go. Happy fourth birthday to the podcast. So I, I, don't th- I don't have anything particularly fucking special planned for the fourth birthday because I didn't know what was happening. Acast reminded me. I didn't know it was the fourth birthday at all. But what I would like to do this week, again because I've been getting so many requests, I've been getting so many requests from ye recently, the past month in particular, to, to do more mental health themed podcasts because there's something in the water. I think what it is, is right now is, is the most normal society has been since the start of the, the pandemic in 2020. Like restrictions are eased to the point that we're 98% at normal life. And the confrontation of that is, I don't even know the word from it. I think overwhelming is the word. It's quite overwhelming right now. Like here's a really bizarre experience I had this week. I was walking around Limerick City. Now I've been in Limerick City Centre a couple of times during the pandemic. But during the pandemic, especially during lockdown, our experience of public spaces was defined by a heightened anxiety. You're thinking about social distancing, you're thinking about your masks, you're thinking about keeping yourself safe and other people safe. So that's how public spaces have been for us all over the past two years. And when you're in that emotional space, one of threat assessment, you're not in the present moment, which means you're not observing, you're not looking around you. So, yes, I visited Limerick City Centre a couple of times over the pandemic but I wasn't looking around me. I wasn't walking around the city for the sake of walking around it. This week, that's what I did. I was in the city centre. I was walking around. I was people watching. I was looking at buildings. I was aware of my surroundings because I'm no longer in threat assessment mode. Things are a bit more normal. I'm double vaxxed. So are a lot of other people. I'm still aware of COVID, but it's not making me anxious anymore. I feel safe. So because of this, my anxiety was lower and I was more visually observant. And I started to look and I, the strangest feeling came, up, came over me. Limerick has um, a slight Chernobyl vibe right now. Now, but what I mean by that is, is Chernobyl, we know Chernobyl as the place in Ukraine where there was a nuclear meltdown in 1984. And it all had to be shut down because it was irradiated. But Chernobyl now is like a grown over city. It's full of leaves and weeds and wildlife and plants and trees. It's been reclaimed by nature. So when I was walking around Limerick City Centre the other day, noticing my surroundings, Limerick's kind of been reclaimed by nature a little bit. Like two years of a pandemic, two years of hardly any activity in the city. Paint is peeling. 
road signs are a weird kind of dark shade. Stuff needs to be, stuff needs a lick of paint. Weeds are exceptionally large. There's weeds growing from the cracks in concrete that wouldn't exist because people would have walked over them. So there's the subtle sense of the city being overgrown, which is understandable because of two years of activity. So I started to notice this. But the problem was, my body and brain couldn't register the two years having passed. So I felt as if I'd come out of a little coma. I could see that two years had passed, but I couldn't feel that two years had passed. And that was really overwhelming because I don't have a context for it. And then I started to get a little pang of existential anxiety. Where I was wondering about the nature of reality and what does time and the passage of time even mean? Or, or being in a bar and you're looking around at the decor in the bar and it feels a tiny bit dated. It feels a little bit 2017. You know when you're in a bar in Ireland and there's a bang of peaky blinders off it. I don't know how to describe that but it's like there's a bang of peaky blinders here. The barman's wearing a flat cap and you're there in the bar thinking wow this feels really outdated. But your brain is going how could something from 2017 feel outdated? That was only two years ago. It's 2019. Then you go, no, it's not. It's 2022. Or what if I told you in a month's time, 2017 was half a decade ago. <laughs> like even on the subject of style or fashion, like what, like how do we know what haircut we're supposed to have right now? You just pick up from 2019 because over the past two years, Everyone was cutting their own hair at home. Like you're going to be watching reeling in the ears in 10 years time and it'll show you 2020. And all the politicians are on TV looking like a Jack Russell had a go at their head. Or music. You know, fashions, trends, music, they all had to exist over the past two years. Divide of social interaction. Like what big song would we have had there? That song Wet Ass Pussy. By Megan the Stallion. No one got to dance to that in a nightclub. No one got to dance together and talk about their wet ass pussies. It's lost in the ether as a digital artifact. People have to dance to it by themselves at home on their own and talk about how much they enjoyed it on the internet. And we're all going through that right now. It's quite stressful. Our entire perception of time has been fucked with. I genuinely, I couldn't with confidence tell you if two years has just passed I honestly couldn't tell you like the only way I can tell the difference between 2020 and 2021 is by what box set I was watching on a streaming service so if I was watching Mad Men it was 2020 and if I was watching The Sopranos it was 2021 like do you know like the five days after Christmas where you don't know what day it is. We've had that for two years. And that's why when I walk around Limerick City Centre. And see an overgrown footpath. I feel like as, a, as if I've woken up from a coma. The visual information says two years. But my internal clock does not. It won't believe it. It won't believe the visual. So when our sense of time and space gets fucked around like that. That can be quite stressful. 
And we don't really have a context for this one because I don't think we've lived through a pandemic before. But I can tell you what it's quite similar to and another quite stressful situation. If you've ever had a bereavement, if, if someone close to you has died, you'll know that there's that initial period of grief when the person dies and you tend to have a lot of support around you and people tend to keep you busy and you've got the funeral and people are ringing up and people are checking in with you and that really keeps you going for like three weeks and then people stop then that period is over people aren't ringing as much people aren't checking in as much and now you're just left with the absence of that person but it fucks with your sense of time and it fucks with your sense of space because you haven't fully the person is gone but your heart your brain your sense of space hasn't registered it so that's when you find yourself sitting in your house and you're used you're you're autonomously used to that person coming in the door and then they don't Or you're used to hearing their footsteps, but they don't exist. And you're truly confronted with the physical absence of that person when your neural pathways in your brain are still wired to their presence, if you get me. And that's very stressful. And returning to society after COVID is a bit like that. It's a bit like that. So this week's podcast isn't about confusion around time the reason I'm speaking about confusion around time is because it's a common stressful situation that we're all going through right now quote unquote re-engaging with normality is something every one of us are dealing with right now and it's a lot and I think that's why so many people are asking me to speak about mental health as a type of soothing um, quite a bit this month in particular because we're re-engaging with society So what I want to speak about this week and something that's really important is what's known as making the head to heart connection. What do I mean by that? Let's just say you struggle with low self-esteem, which means that if you're being incredibly honest with yourself and you were to write down on a piece of paper, how do you feel about yourself? You might write, I'm a bad person. I'm weak. I'm defective. I'm not as good as other people. They're real people. I'm not a real person. I'm a weak little piece of shit. So that right there, those are the type of of opinions that you can have about yourself when you're suffering from low self-esteem or depression. But then you can learn, hold on a second. I, just by being human, I actually have intrinsic worth. This business of me being bad or being a piece of shit, there's no evidence for that. That's not realistic. In fact, I have intrinsic worth. Nobody else is better than me and I'm better than nobody else because humans are too complex to evaluate against each other. I have worth. Now, those are very pretty words and they're very empowering words and it's great to hear words like that. And if you suffer from low self-esteem and you tell yourself, you know, if your internal dialogue is, is to beat yourself up a lot and to say to yourself, 
I'm a piece of shit, I'm useless, I'm worthless, everyone is better than me. If that's your internal dialogue all day, then hearing me say something there like, you've got intrinsic worth, no one's better than you, you're better than nobody else, that sounds magnificent. But it's just words. How do you go from hearing those words and knowing that like, yeah, that sounds right. That's that that actually sounds like a like a much better way to think about myself than calling myself a piece of shit. But how do you go from simply thinking that to genuinely feeling it? Genuinely feeling it to the point that you change as a human being. Because before you feel that, sometimes when you tell yourself that kind of rational, flexible interpretation of, of your person, sometimes it feels like you're lying to yourself. So you can say to yourself all day long, I have intrinsic worth. I have intrinsic, I, I have worth simply by being human. You can be saying it to yourself, but deep down you still feel like a piece of shit. How do you replace that feeling of feeling like a piece of shit with... I'm okay. I'm happy with who I am. I'm comfortable looking in the mirror. That's called moving something from your head to your heart. And it's it's very similar to... If you were exercising, let's just say you want to get it in, into, into weightlifting. What would you do? You might go onto YouTube and look up some weightlifting videos. You'd look at someone... And they'll talk about nutrition, they'll talk about proper form, they'll talk about weights, and you learn all this stuff about weightlifting. But simply learning about it isn't going to cause you to become more physically fit. You have to take that knowledge, apply it, and literally pick up a few weights. And if you do that properly, you'll become physically fitter. Fucking self-help and psychology is the exact same. It's the exact same. So that's what I'm going to talk about. So first, we need to talk about what's called negative automatic thoughts. So when I was mentioning there the experience of having low self-worth or low self-esteem, what's going on there that your internal dialogue, when when you're presented with the question of how do you feel about yourself, if you have low self-esteem, your immediate reaction is, I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit. That's known as a negative automatic thought. Because of childhood experiences, moments of trauma, whatever. Your brain has decided to make a very simplified neural pathway that causes you to have a poor opinion of yourself. Here's an example of a negative automatic thought. You're in the library at college. And while you're walking towards the door, there's a waste paper basket on the ground that you don't notice. You knock it over slightly and you stumble and your face goes red and you feel embarrassment. You run out of the library and then you're outside and you're fucking mortified. And without, without thinking, because this is a negative automatic thought, the first thing that comes into your head is... I just humiliated myself in the library. Everybody saw. Everybody is judging me. They all think that I'm a clumsy fucking wanker. I'm humiliated. I always do things like this. I'm never going into the library again. So that negative automatic thought is known as catastrophizing. 
when a triggering event happens to you, something that's a triggering event that is negative, and then you interpret that in the worst case scenario possible. And the problem is because your brain has immediately jumped to the worst case scenario possible, it hasn't let in any conflicting information. And now you begin to behave as if the negative automatic thought, the catastrophizing thought is reality. So just a tiny refresher on cognitive psychology. So cognitive psychology would state that discomfort isn't caused by what happens, but our attitude towards what happens. So in that situation, you had an activating event. A, you fell over a waste paper basket. That's what actually happened in reality. B, your belief about that. Your belief is that was utterly humiliating. Everybody saw it and now they're all judging me. And then C, the consequences of B. C is you feel humiliated and you withdraw socially. So B and C are two very painful things there. B, you've made your mind up that everyone is laughing at you. You've made your mind up that you've been publicly humiliated. C, you now feel that way and you've withdrawn socially. All the discomfort in that situation isn't caused by what actually happened. It's caused by your belief about what happened. But be there, the immediate feeling of humiliation, that's called a negative automatic thought. It was the first thought that jumped into your head and no other information was allowed in. Now, if that scenario rings true with you, then I'm guessing it happens quite a lot in your existence. That you are prone to a negative automatic thought of catastrophizing. So it means the next day, you're walking down the corridor, you're in college again, you're walking down the corridor, and you see your buddy, and you wave at them, and they don't wave back, they walk past you. And then immediately you catastrophize. Your first thought is, oh my fucking God. They were either in the library yesterday or someone told them. They're embarrassed to even pretend that they fucking know me. They think I'm fucking pathetic. So a person who's experiencing these type of negative automatic thoughts would use cognitive behavioural therapy to challenge that situation. So like we said, Human discomfort isn't caused by what happens. It's caused by our attitude towards what happens. So that person would try and challenge their attitudes. So they'd write down on a sheet of paper. I fell over in the fucking library. And I felt humiliated. And I felt like every single person was judging me. So then you'd write down an alternative set of beliefs. Because the thing is. You're not in the triggering situation now. When you're in a situation that triggers one of your negative automatic thoughts, you become emotionally flooded. So you don't have the cognitive capacity of your brain. You can't use critical thinking. But now you're at home and you're, at a, you're, you're emotionally regulated. You're calm. You're thinking about what happened in the day earlier with the waste paper basket. And you have your full cognitive functions to be able to write down okay, here's some alternative beliefs about what happened today with the waste paper basket. 
Where is the evidence that every single person in the library laughed at me? There is no evidence for this. Maybe some people did see me and they just didn't give a shit. They got on with their day. They didn't care. That's possible. Maybe someone saw me fall over the waste paper basket and instead of thinking that I'm deserving of of humiliation, instead they put themselves in my shoes and they felt, I wouldn't like to, to fall over a waste paper basket. I hope they're okay. Maybe, maybe some people took a compassionate view of me falling over a waste paper basket. Maybe one person did laugh at me. And so what? What difference does it make? What evidence do I have that if I was to return to the library, every single person would remember me as the person who fell over the waste paper basket? I have no evidence for this. So the person would be writing this stuff down, forming these alternative beliefs, moving away from the negative automatic thought of catastrophizing. So that's it, problem solved. Not necessarily. That exercise has given that person momentary relief. It's helped them along. But chances are, the next day, or sometime that week, they're back to square one. They're walking down the corridor in college and they see their friend Jennifer and they say, what's the crack, Jennifer? And Jennifer doesn't, they're not happy with the hello that Jennifer gives them. And then they immediately go, oh, fuck. Jennifer thinks I'm worthy of humiliation too. She must have heard about what happened in the library. I'm such a piece of shit. I'm going to avoid Jennifer. And I might even be rude to her. And they haven't entertained the, the multitude possible reasons as to why Jennifer gave a lacklustre hello. They haven't entertained that Jennifer might be going through her own shit and it has nothing to do with them. So instead they ran with the negative automatic thought of catastrophizing and now they feel like shit for the rest of the day and they feel rejected and humiliated. And later on they have to go back to their sheet of paper and challenge the beliefs. So that person needs to move those new beliefs from their head to their heart. They need their automatic thoughts in the moment, in a triggering event, to become the new beliefs. And why is it so difficult to do that? Because these negative automatic thoughts, such as catastrophizing, we form these things really early in life and they're patterns that work for us throughout life so you can't just repattern overnight it takes hard work and I'm going to speak about that directly after the ocarina pause here is the ocarina the Spanish clay whistle hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You would have heard some adverts there, some uh, algorithmically inserted adverts from Acast. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. It's how I earn a living. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you listen to it frequently and you're taking something from it, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. If you met me in real life, would you say, I'd buy him a pint? Well, you can, via Patreon. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. And if you can't afford it, you're paying for the person who can't afford it to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Also, it keeps the podcast fully independent and no advertiser can tell me what to speak about or adjust my content in any way. And that's really important in this environment of big podcast, big corporate podcast. And support not just this independent podcast, but any independent podcast that you enjoy. That's very important. Catch me on Twitch once a week. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast for I'm making a never ending video game musical. So just before the ocarina pause there, where I spoke about the hypothetical situation of a person falling over a waste paper basket in a library and catastrophizing that into a fantasy of humiliation. That's kind of an, a general overview of cognitive behavioural therapy and cognitive psychology. And I've got a couple of those podcasts if you want to go back and listen to them in greater depth. But what we're talking about here is moving new beliefs from our head to our heart so that we're literally repatterning our brains like this is how a negative automatic thought works you learn at an early age and catastrophizing is just one example you learn at an early age probably from a parent's behaviour maybe your parents tended to catastrophize things maybe you grew up in an, an environment where there was a lot of stress if you grew up in a house where your parents are struggling to meet bills and your dad and your ma are consistently worrying about fuck it, if we, if we don't, if there were, the electricity is going to get cut off, there'll be no petrol in the car, what if that check doesn't come through, where am I going to get the dinner for this Friday? If you grow up in an environment like that, where there's a lot of panic and a lot of stress around certain situations and you're a little child watching, you will learn that to catastrophize is an appropriate reaction to a stressful event. And you will become a catastrophizer. And then when you become an adult, your negative automatic thought for multitudes of situations is to immediately jump 
to the worst possible conclusion. And this can cause you quite a bit of discomfort, sadness, social isolation, depression, anxiety. The list goes on. But when you learn to catastrophize at such a young age, the neural pathways in your brain there, they're quite strong. Your brain has decided to automate catastrophizing. And catastrophizing isn't the only negative automatic thought. There's loads. Like earlier when I I gave the example of the person with low self-esteem, that person who's engaging in the negative automatic thought of labelling. Maybe you're going to sit in your driver theory test and you fail it. And after you fail it, you label yourself a failure. You're not a person who failed a test. You label yourself a failure. Another form of negative automatic thought is emotional reasoning. You feel an emotion and you don't question that emotion. You take it as the absolute truth. Classic example. Sometimes we wake up in the morning and the first thing we feel is a sense of dread or a sense of sadness. Sometimes you wake up with a a negative emotion for whatever reason. Let's just say you wake up with a sense of dread. Now, if you're going through a stressful situation in life, if there's something causing you stress, waking up first thing in the morning and having a sense of dread or fear, we can all kind of relate to that. But if you engage in the negative automatic thought of emotional reasoning, you wake up in the morning with a sense of dread and then you decide something is terribly wrong, something is awful. The rest of my day is going to be terrible because why would I be feeling this sense of dread unless something awful is happening or is going to happen? And these are negative automatic thoughts. The first conclusion that we jump to that influences our beliefs around triggering events and that causes discomfort and they're usually rooted in childhood. And it's like, I use the analogy of the field Let's just say there's a shop beside your house and between your house and the shop is a field and you've created a little path in the grass to the shop through the field. And every day without thinking of it, like it's an entire field, you can walk wherever you want, but every day without thinking of it, you just walk through that path in the grass that you've made every time and it's autonomous, it's automatic. That's the path that you take to get to the shop. That's what a negative automatic thought is. It's a well-worn path and it's your brain has made an automatic connection even if it's a bad one, even if it causes you stress because that was the easiest thing for your brain to do. So one day you decide instead I'm going to walk across the field to the shop but I'm not going to use that same path. I'm actually going to make a new one in the grass and you do and the first time you do it it's quite difficult because the grass is tall and you have to put in that effort of stamping it down but then tomorrow it's a little bit easier and after a week now that's your new automatic path the new one and the other one is growing over it's disappearing that's the process of moving something from your head to your heart you're literally repatterning your brain and how you do this it requires it requires two things We need to literally act in accordance with our new belief. And we need to be able to tolerate frustration and discomfort. Those two things together. 
in particular the tolerance of frustration. The tolerance of frustration is really difficult. That's where fucking growth happens. So let's take it back to the waste paper basket in the library. How does that person actively work on themselves so that they become someone who doesn't catastrophize? But what they do, and this this is the, uh, the more advanced stages of CBT, this can take a while. What they would do is, we've discussed that they went home. They went home and they, they took out their sheet of paper and they formed alternative beliefs around falling over the waste paper basket. So they wrote down on a sheet of paper, what evidence do I have that every single in the person, every single person in the library was laughing at me? What evidence do I have that they were, that anyone was laughing at me? Maybe some people were compassionate. What's so embarrassing about falling over a waste paper basket? I am a fallible human being. Human beings make mistakes and that's okay. There's nothing to be humiliated about. Why am I so embarrassed? So the person has written all this stuff down. But just because they've written it down and in in a moment of relaxation, they're able to critically think about the situation. That doesn't mean they're not going to repeat the same shit tomorrow. So what that person needs to do is they need to ask themselves. How would a person act if they weren't humiliated by falling over a fucking waste paper basket? This is where you need to get creative. They start to create a little, write a little script of, I'm thinking of of another person and this other person is in the library and they're walking towards the door and because they're a fallible human being they accidentally trip over the waste paper basket and people look up and stare but the person isn't phased by this they don't mind being the centre of attention they're actually okay with the fact that people have looked up it's quite natural that you'd look up if you hear a noise such as a waste paper basket falling over. So what does the person do? They slowly and calmly pick the waste paper basket back up. They pick the carton of orange juice that fell out, the few bits of paper. They put them back in the bin. They place the bin back to where it was and they calmly leave the library and everyone else gets back to their work. And they've now written out a scenario of a character in their head who behaves how they would love to be able to behave in that situation. But it's terrifying. So what are they going to have to do? And this is the scary part. This is where the frustration tolerance comes in. This person is going to have to set themselves a little bit of homework. They're either going to go back to the library... Or they're going to go to a different library. Or they're going to manufacture a a similar situation. Whereby they're in a public setting. And they do something fallible. They drop something loud. They're in the canteen. And while they're queuing. They drop their tray. And the fork makes a big loud noise. And everybody in the canteen looks up. 
and for that moment they become the centre of attention or they do the same thing with the waste paper basket. And what they're risking here is they need to put themselves in a situation where they are the centre of attention, the thing that fucking terrifies them. And they have to tolerate the discomfort and frustration of other people's eyes on them. And while people are staring, they need to calmly pick up the tray, put the fork back, or fix the fucking waste paper basket. And it'll be really, really difficult. But if they can do that, if they can literally act like someone who doesn't catastrophize or doesn't feel humiliated, once they do that, they've made a genuine step towards repatterning their brain. And they're going to walk out of that situation feeling a little bit more confident. And they're going to walk out of the situation possibly getting a little bit of a buzz and wanting to do it again. Like I used to do this shit with with my agoraphobia. I used to gradually walk into the middle of crowds because the idea and thought of that was fucking terrifying. So I would walk not right into the middle of a crowd but I'd get myself into a crowded area surrounded by people it would feel terrifying but I'd remind myself that ultimately I'm safe and I would sit with the terror and fear I would sit with that discomfort I'd really sit with it in that crowd and then I'd walk out and it would take so much energy out of me but I'd feel empowered until eventually after a couple of weeks I was without any fear walking right into the middle of crowds and getting a buzz out of it getting a buzz out of doing something that fucking stifled and terrored me a few months previously and right there I'm retraining neural pathways in my brain I'm literally walking the new path to the shop and changing my fucking brain What else would the person do who struggles with catastrophizing? So, we've spoken about the waste paper basket. The other thing they catastrophize is when they greet a friend, if the friend doesn't greet them back in a way that they deem appropriate, their negative automatic thought is to catastrophize and assume that the other person hates them or is rejecting them in some way. So how do they challenge that? The next time they say hello to someone and if the person isn't exuberant or if the person is in a rush they might go to that person later on in the day they'll find that person and they'll say to him earlier on uh, when I said hello to you in the corridor um, you, 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 you seemed a bit off are you alright are you okay is anything going on for you now what's important about that is they're not going up accusing the person of being rude or any shit like that because the person is entitled to not say hello. But what they're doing is they're using empathy and that's going to be terrifying because you have to remember earlier on in the day this person catastrophized and made their mind up that their friend didn't like them. So by going up to them later in the day and asking that friend how they are they're in their minds risking rejection. They've made their mind up. This person definitely hates me and that's why they didn't say hello properly earlier. They fucking hate me. So the thought of going up and talking to that person is terrifying. 
because they think they're going to get rejected. So therein lies the frustration tolerance. Tolerating the frustration of making a genuine connection with someone who didn't give you a proper hello earlier and doing it from the context of compassion and empathy. Asking them, how are you? What's going on? You seem distracted earlier. Is everything all right with you? And you do that, your confidence grows and you repattern your brain until eventually the next time you're met with a triggering situation your negative or sorry your automatic thought is no longer the negative one it's an automatic flexible thought an automatic rational thought and you grow towards becoming the healthy happy human being that you deserve to be just like lifting weights you looked at the YouTube video you learned about lifting weights you looked at the person lifting weights. You imagined yourself lifting weights. And then you went and lifted a load of fucking weights. And now you put on muscle. It's the same shit. What if you have a negative automatic thought that in social situations you must be liked? People must like you. So you end up in a situation where when you speak to people, you're continually trying to impress them. That you can't leave a social conversation without feeling as if you've impressed the person you've spoken to. What would you do in that situation? What what frustration would you have to tolerate? Well, you'd practice having conversations with people where you say the least amount of words possible and you try your best to let the other person do most of the talking. So the next time you meet someone, you're not telling them about yourself. You're not talking about it achievements you've had you're literally trying your best to go how are you how was that for you how did that feel and try and have a conversation where it's mostly the other person talking sit and deal with that frustration like one thing I sometimes struggle with is the fear of failing especially when it comes to creativity and art because I was raised when I was a little child if I exhibited any skill in drawing or painting or music, I received quite a bit of praise from the adults around me and I internalised that praise as a form of self-worth. And then I, as an adult, materialised the mistaken belief that I am only a good person when I create good work. And if I create work that's bad or fails, then I'm a terrible human being and I deserve to punish myself and I deserve to feel like shit so that as you can imagine isn't very helpful for my fucking life because what it can mean is procrastination if I'm terrified of failing because to fail means being a bad person then I'll avoid trying because why would I try when the risk means hurt so what I try and do is, like, as in my behaviour to repattern my brain, I deliberately seek failure in creativity. I make failure part of my process. One example of this is my Twitch stream. So I do my Twitch stream once a week and I make songs to a video game to a live audience. And I fail 
all the time. I fuck up non-stop. I make songs that are shit. And sometimes I make songs that are good. But within an hour, I make some woeful shit. While people are watching, I fail continually. Because the, the reality is, you simply can't have a creative success unless you have a shit ton of failures. You have to fail, 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 fail. And through that attempt and through trying, then one out of every ten attempt will be a success. But you have to tolerate the frustration and pain of failure. So I turn it up to eleven. I fail continually while people are watching so that I can completely remove the fear of it and most importantly so that I, that I can remove my mistaken belief that making a shit piece of art means that I'm a bad human being because what happens when I fail on my Twitch stream what happens when I decide to write a little song and it's out of time or I get a wrong note or simply the song just isn't catchy or isn't good what happens? fucking nothing people move on from it one person might call it shit ultimately people move on no one gives a fuck no one gives a shit no one thinks any less of me and this idea that I have that it makes me somehow less of a person that's just a construct from my childhood that's some misinformation and that's me actively actively moving something from my head to my heart going from thinking something or having a hunch about something to deeply feeling it as being true I'll tell you a wonderful example of this that exists already in culture the no makeup selfie there's so much pressure on places like Instagram and women in particular to live up to unrealistic beauty standards or to have perfect makeup all the time that a trend exists or someone will just post a photograph of themselves without makeup. And if you're the type of person who, you know, you might delete a selfie if you feel it doesn't get enough likes, or the concept of uploading a photograph of yourself where you're, you're not happy with how you look, if the concept of that fills you with terror, then posting the, the no makeup selfie is a wonderful example there of repatterning your brain behaving in a way that's congruent with your new belief and you're tolerating the frustration tolerating the frustration of having a photograph of yourself online that might possibly have caused you a sense of terror so that's how we move things from our head to our heart through actions through actions and experiments in reality and most importantly Sitting with frustration. Sitting with discomfort. That's where the real fucking growth happens. It's the person who's afraid of spiders. Holding a spider in their hand. And every second of that feeling like a fucking hour. Like that's the thing with this with this growth. When you challenge something. When you're trying to bring a new belief into reality. It feels like an hour. Like that person who takes the risk of falling over the waste paper basket and then going fuck it I'm going to turn around and I'm going to put that waste paper basket back even though everyone saw me trip over it I'm going to put it back while they're all 
still watching me. That's going to feel like an hour, even though it might only be 20 seconds. But within that time, that's where growth happens. That's where the brain repatterns. So that's all I have time for this week. I hope that was helpful for you and it made sense. I'm conscious that I told that entire thing kind of... I didn't go in depth about CBT because I've I've done that before in other podcasts and I didn't want to completely retread the basics of CBT. So I hope if you've never heard any of my CBT podcasts that that actually did make sense to you. If not, there's about three or four CBT podcasts around the earlier episodes. Go back and listen to them. For the rest of you, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to sign off now by playing an advert, right? But after the advert, I'm going to come back with this new segment that I'm doing, which quite a lot of people are enjoying, which is fantastic. I'm loving the feedback for it. People were very disappointed that I didn't do it last week. So what I've started doing is I come back after the advert and I speak about and play a song that I made on my live Twitch stream. And I put it after the advert because I'm conscious that like, not everyone's into music. Not everyone wants to hear someone fucking making music. So if you're not into that, don't bother. If you are into that, come around after the break. Dog bless. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So we're back now after an algorithmically generated advert. So, every week on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind boy podcast, I make, I make music live, I make up music on the spot, live, to the events of a video game. I wander around a digital environment, a fully formed digital environment, and I use that environment as inspiration for songwriting, and I do it to a live stream audience. And what I'm trying to achieve is the sensation of flow, the condition of flow where creativity happens. It's a very playful space. And as I mentioned earlier, failure is a huge part of that process. So I might go on stream for maybe an hour. I'll do five songs. They're all kind of, I make, like I literally make the entire thing up on the spot so I don't know what note is coming next. I'm just having fun. I'm being playful. Out of five songs, maybe one or two will be good and the rest won't be good. But each week I come away with one song that I'd be quite happy with. So the song I'm going to play now. I was wandering around uh, a video game called Cyberpunk 2077, which is a game that's set in the year 2077 in the future. It's not a great game, but it's visually quite nice and I find that it's uh, it's not a bad game to write songs to because the visual ambience of the game it inspires, it can inspire music in me and what I like about cyberpunk is 
because of all the neon lights and the colours in the game, it naturally makes me create music that's kind of funky and sexy. So I was wandering around the digital sex district in this game. Uh, so it's this neon district full of sex shops and sex workers. And I'm just wandering around. And then I, I came across this sex shop window. And there was two mannequins in the window. And they appeared to be doing a sexual act. But the sexual act wasn't clear. And it looked like the mannequins were actually trying to do shits into each other's arses. That's what it looked like in the moment. And I didn't I didn't question. I didn't question it. I just went with it and said, right, I'm going to write a song called Shit Into My Arse. And I'm really happy with this song musically. Musically, I'm incredibly happy with it. It's, it's really catchy. Unfortunately, it's called Shit Into My Arse. That's the nature of this. But as a songwriting project... Why this has value is like, I, okay, I can write a song called Shit Into My Arse, but I can take those lyrics away and I can keep the music and I can keep the melody and I could go at it again and change the lyrics into something that doesn't have anything to do with shitting into people's arses. But in the meantime, please enjoy uh, Shit Into My Arse. And again, what I find incredibly rewarding about this process is when I'm playing this music over the podcast, it's stripped of the visual information. You can't see my character walking around the video game. So the lyrics become detached to that and they, they now take on a new meaning, which I really thoroughly enjoy. So this is shit into my arse. I'll talk to you next week. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four.